Let us pray together. Holy God, on this first Advent morning, we begin to wait and to watch. We wait with anticipation. We wait with apprehension. We wait wondering how the birth of this tiny light can possibly change the world. And yet we wait expectantly with trust and with gratitude. In the name of the one whom we wait for and whose life gives us hope. Amen. So late last Saturday afternoon, I looked over at a seasonally confused corner of my house, complete with a thankful pillow in the chair, orange and white striped birthday ribbon draped from the curtain rods, affixed with these tiny little clothespins that held your pictures up from the last year, and the not-yet-fluffed branches of our artificial Christmas tree. Crammed into less than 48 hours had been multiple celebrations, endings, and beginnings, and I immediately felt the weariness and the whiplash, and yes, the irony of the scene now before me. I felt the same feeling as I sat in my kitchen working on the final day of November. Autumn scented candle burning, thankful tree adorning the table, green festive holiday chevron pattern mug for sipping coffee, and advent music blaring in the background. This in-between space, the waiting place, where endings and beginnings are already but not yet, can be an awkward space. It isn't one we usually choose to linger in, because it is confusing and frustrating, and at least for me, implies that I am not on my game quite as much as I should be, and so instead we speed through, moving on to the next certainty as quickly as possible. Now this waiting place frustration reminds me of a book we gifted Eliza last week for her birthday. The Tale of a Pig Aptly Named Piggy and an Elephant Named Gerald. Good! Piggy excitedly offers Gerald a surprise, one that is big, pretty, and that they can share. But when pressed, Piggy confesses that Gerald must wait for the gift. They wait and wait. Not surprisingly, Gerald loses patience. I'll spare you the sound effects I offer when I read the book at home, but Gerald groans loudly and then decides to wait. Gerald gets frustrated, exclaims that the gift can't possibly be worth waiting for, and begins to stomp off, and then decides to wait. Gerald groans again, louder this time, and then quietly whispers, Okay, I'll stay and keep waiting. But then, as darkness falls and perhaps a tinge of fear settles in, Gerald has had enough and loudly exclaims, We have wasted the whole day! We have waited and waited and waited and waited, and for what? Gerald and we know that the waiting space is a space where we vacillate between joy and fear laced with frustration. 
It's a space of confusion, a space where we lack clarity sometimes, a space of feelings we would rather not feel, and frustration that we have less control than we would like. And somewhere in that middle space is where hope is born, where the desire for wholeness and joy irrationally overrides fear's message to run. And so, finally, we are here. We come to the first Sunday of Advent dragging our seasonal confusion and our deepest yearnings with us. We arrive with our whole selves to this new form of waiting right where we are, right in the midst of the darkness and the dimness of the world. And it's fitting that hope grounds us today for that mix of deep longing and hesitant trust is a hallmark of transition. Jim read for us in the early moments of worship the words of Jeremiah the prophet. These words and their context are important because they help us understand the context of the gospel passage later. The people hearing Jeremiah's words are under siege by the Babylonian army. Their well-being is threatened. They are suffering. Soon the army would conquer the city of Jerusalem, exile the people, destroy their religious center, and upset every comforting rhythm of daily life. In godly play... We tell the story this way, as the people of God move through the desert sand. Then the Babylonians came, and they did not go away. Their king wanted the city of Jerusalem for himself. They broke down the walls and burned the temple. They took many of the people away. Only a few were left in the land. The soldiers marched God's people away from Jerusalem They looked back at the smoke of the burning city and wondered if they would ever see it again. As they walked through the desert, they had to get up when the soldiers said. They had to eat what the soldiers said. They had to go where the soldiers said. They had to go to bed when the soldiers said. They grew weary and some died. It took a long time. They were in exile They could not go home. They hung their harps on the weeping willow trees and sang sad songs. They dreamed of Jerusalem and the temple, but they could not go back. The people of God longed for relief, for wholeness, for the world to be as it should be and not as it was. In the depth of such sadness and grief, one can't truly imagine what that would look like. But it's what they longed for more than anything. And that is the landscape into which Jeremiah spoke. Bold words that must have sounded completely and utterly impossible. And yet the depths of despair allowed those words to be leaned into, even trusted, for what other alternative was there? The present reality was just too overwhelmingly dark and filled with grief and sadness. And so Jeremiah's words became words of reminder. Remember, God has made promises and kept them, and God will keep them again. This present darkness will not last forever. Someday, sometime, there will be a ruler who will practice justice and righteousness as it should be. So show up and keep going. Watch and wait. Trust 
You are in the confusing waiting place right now, but when and where you least expect it, there will be a new beginning. Our gospel text this morning is a text primarily about living with hope in the waiting place as well. And we find ourselves invited into a genre of apocalyptic literature found in Christian circles for a millennium, most notably found in Daniel and Revelation, with nods to it in other places like this one. Fred Craddock writes that apocalyptic literature is written where the focus is on eschatology, or the end of the world as we now experience it, and the beginning of a new world. With the pain of the people of God and Jeremiah ringing in our ears, we find Jesus foretelling the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem for a second time, just a few verses before our text begins today. Now, the primary point of apocalyptic literature isn't actually the terrifying end, although it's fantastic language about signs and roaring seas might lead us to think that. It is more fully about the emergence of a hope-filled new beginning. And Jesus quickly moves there with his promise of the coming of the Son of Man in great power and glory. Perhaps too quickly. For it actually doesn't take much imagination for us to picture an earth in distress. People fainting from fear and foreboding for the world to look as if it is crumbling at every turn. It looked and was that way for the people in exile. Jesus foretells it for the people who are hearing his words in this text. And goodness, we sure feel it today. I could name the long litany. But the truth is the remainder of these minutes couldn't hold all of the pain and frustration and anger and sadness in the world at large or even in our own personal struggles. If you do need that list in a quantifiable way today, I invite you to take a moment and quickly scribble down your top five. I imagine they pour out of you like water from a fire hose, fast and furious. Naming that which worries us most is important and can be a healthy exercise. Better out than end, a friend of mine is fond of saying. As we go into this season, it's good to name that which we carry with us and that which we deeply grieve. And so once we have named the present reality, then, I think only then maybe, perhaps we can hear Jesus' words of hope. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. The world seems to be crumbling, Jesus says, but restoration and recovery will come soon, and it will happen through me. It's tempting to allow fear to overcome you and cause you to hang your head low, but I implore you to do this instead. Courageously look up. All is not lost. And then Jesus pivots. His words become less about the hope of the new beginning and instead the how of waiting for that beginning to arrive. Be on guard, he says. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength. Be on guard so that you are not consumed by all that is terrible, by cynicism and anxiety and negativity and fear and avoidance and numbness and despair. It can happen easily, so be careful. 
Even in the thick of the fight, even while hanging harps on willow trees and singing songs of deep sadness, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Be kind to yourself. Keep showing up. Offer and receive grace. Keep loving each other. Look for God breaking through in the midst of the chaos. Keep being generous. Lean into goodness. Keep imagining that a less broken world is in fact possible. Look among the straw and the stars for the light. Hope against all hope. I invite you to imagine a candle, perhaps the candle of hope that we lit this morning. Fed by the wick, solidly grounded in wax, the flame burns. It dances, it bobs about. The draft from the movement of air keeps it from being static and stuck, but it is always grounded in its foundation. Be light, such that you are able to move and dance and even be swayed nimbly by that which is surrounding you, but don't lose your grip, your footing, your grounding. Don't allow the draft to extinguish your light. Stay connected to the source of love and light and hope. Friends, the waiting place can take a while. Scripture doesn't define what your redemption being near means. It could be Tuesday, or a year from now, or a generation from now. The mystery of the nearness of time and the reality of the waiting place is true for us as a congregation in a transition of leadership. It's true for those dealing with a flare of their chronic illness. It's true for the juggling of work and school and home in modern life. It's true for the person longing to have their personhood honored by a loved one. It's true for the person who mourns the loss of their beloved. It's true for the person longing for the freedom of retirement or a more fulfilling place of employment. And it is certainly true in the quest for justice. But it is in the posture and practice of hope in the everyday of pressing on, that the beginning of a more whole self and world emerges. We hold our hope carefully in this waiting place, for it is fragile, but we continue on. In my experience, which as a youngish person feels much more vast than it ought to be, the most powerful ways to fight against cynicism and numbness and fear and to hold on to hope are these. In no particular order, save the first. First, breathe. Sometimes it's just too much and too sad and too overwhelming, and your only job is to breathe. Breath is life. And because this is rarely mentioned from the pulpit, if you are sitting in the pew longing and struggling to have a child and it's Advent where baby Jesus is suddenly everywhere, just breathe. Second, pray. This isn't formulaic prayer. This is honest prayer. This is questioning prayer. Get it out. God can take it. Whether it's joy or anger or sadness or sorrow or excitement, allow God to hold it with you. And if you've stepped away from God, wonder what it might be like to let God back in. Third, lean into your people, whoever they are. Perhaps it is this present people of God who walks with you and loves you. 
Ask for help. Allow them to be part of your journey, for it is gift. Fourth, show up. Sometimes this is our most honest act of hope. Just be there, imperfect and broken. If your emotion leaks out in tears, so be it. If you stand in solidarity, so be it. If you sit in the silence, so be it. Take care not to hurt others in this process, but show up. Fifth, be generous. This looks different for different people, but look for the opportunity. It might be saying yes to helping the neighbor who needs to take their pet to the emergency vet. It might be saying yes to helping a neighbor, excuse me, making cookies for a new neighbor who lives down the street. It might mean being intentional about shopping as a family for the Christmas store item you will bring to the hanging of the green tonight. You know your world and you know your resources, but find a way to be generous somehow. Sixth, say thank you. Gratitude is powerful. Think about the time and the energy that went into the task someone did for you. That packet of gift cards on your desk after the most horrible week didn't just magically show up there. They had to be purchased. The knowledge of what restaurants are around your home considered, the card prepared, and the note laid on your desk when you weren't looking. Be grateful. These things become light that displace the darkness. These practices are waiting space practices that change us and help us then see where God is also at work around us. These practices diffuse the grip of fear. They allow for hope to grow, for a new beginning to emerge. Five years ago, on the first Sunday of Advent, I arrived on a Sunday morning in the thick of the waiting place. The year before had brought immense grief in the days just before Advent began, as we suffered a miscarriage in our family. And as happens, because even ministers are human, I willed myself to show up and walk through the doors. And surprisingly, I had the most glorious God moment listening to the choir sing in these stone walls. And I moved into this tunnel vision place of the holy and then realized that all of the other words that were being spoken and surrounding me were completely hollow. I couldn't comprehend the dissonance. And then I saw the banner off to my left. I was sitting on the front row. I had the perfect view. Purple and shimmering. Words outlined in a brownish-orange, filled with the substance of swirls and paisley. Edged with golden fringe, the banner, now on my right, read hope. I kept staring, wondering how words about hope felt lifeless. But hope itself, when it envelops you so wholly that the rest of the world falls away... It feels so substantive and so healing. And suddenly it was apparent. The banner was creased, imperfect, hanging ever so slightly crooked, kind of like today. Our sanctuary was adorned by a wrinkled hope. Much to the dismay of the worship ministry group and Kathy, the wrinkles rose to the center of my view as I studied them. Time began to fade again, and the sacred moments of music meshed with the words that did not satisfy my soul 
became one as I understood. For most of our experiences with hope are indeed wrinkled. Light comes from darkness. In fact, it is brightest there. Joy rises up out of ashes. Healing comes in the midst of pain. Holy tunnel vision springs forth from hollow words. New beginnings only come from endings. Wrinkled hope is the real hope. Gritty hope is the authentic hope. Hope may have glimpses of shimmer, but the wrinkles tell the whole story. Watch and wait. Trust. The new beginning will come. We begin Advent in the wrinkles, in the waiting place, in the already but not yet and the exhausted and tattered realities of human life. And we trust that hope, the kind that rises up when we choose to make ourselves available and curious, even in the midst of the darkness and the fog, will in fact reveal that the Messiah, the light, is coming after all. The ending, the waiting, the beginning, the grief, the hope, the wholeness. We have waited and waited and waited and waited. And for what? Quietly, Piggy points up to the sky and says, For that. Before them both, as they shrink into the bottom left corner of the, fa- of the page, is a vast and brilliant starry night sky. We have waited and waited and waited and waited. And for what? For this. For hope. Amen.